0: Okay, um, last time we were talking about some of the fundamentals of lasers, how you have an atomic medium that can normally provide gain. If you pump it to have an inversion, you can, sorry, normally has absorption. Pump it to have an inversion, you get gain. You put a uh, cavity around that lasing material, you get a laser oscillator. And by adjusting the length of the cavity, you can adjust the frequency of the light that comes out. So today we'll look at specific examples of real-world lasers, or at least uh real-world classes of lasers. Uh, before we do that, questions? Yeah. Uh, I think in one of the slides we said the feed is the same as the cavity, structure. I think they are not the same. It's related to the quality factor of the cavity filter. Yeah, they are <laughs> the cavity well, Depends on how you define the quality factor. Um, so typically, typically, well, so let me just go over a couple of things about a cavity. A cavity um, with high reflective mirrors. So the reflectivity is the reflectivity is close to one. and you'd expect that light that's However it's generated inside the cavity, Um, you'd expect it to stay inside the cavity uh, for, if you like, many bounces before it leaks out. That's the same as saying there's a high cavity buildup factor. And your homework, which is due next Monday, so even though we don't meet on Wednesday, we have homework due again next Monday, is to calculate the finesse show that it gives these relationships. So you can work out the the exact form of the finesse But it's related to, on average, how many times the light bounces back and forth between the mirrors before it leaks out. So if you think about sort of a photon of light, and watch it bounce back and forth between the mirrors, at some point it leaks out. It has a probability every time of leaking out that's given by the transmissivity of the mirror. Um, So the finesse is a measure of how large this buildup is in the cavity. And I think it differs from the quality factor by like a factor of pi, or pi over two, a numerical factor. Um, One thing that's interesting to do is to ask what happens if you are, let's say you're pumping this cavity, you're driving light into it, you're shining light into it, the light resonates in the cavity and then is transmitted, What happens if you suddenly turn off the input? So if your input as a function of time, let's call this e in, if it looks like this, so this is the amplitude of the input wave, if you suddenly turn it off, what does the output look like? e out. as a function of time. so Assuming you started in the steady state um, and if this is what's called an impedance matched cavity, you get no reflection and all the light is transmitted through. So the output would be the same as the input in that case. What do you think happens when you shut off the input? Yeah. It's going to have this exponential decay. So the quality factor is going to be the n- number of optical cycles before this decays to 1 over e of its initial magnitude. I'm sorry, the number of round trip cycles. So this decay time is tau, such that this height is 1 over e of that height. Then the quality factor, q, is that decay time divided by the round trip time, uh, C, yeah, 2L over C? And so that's used. We'll see um, examples of how this, uh, how you can measure the decay of a cavity when you turn off the input. that decay is determined by how much of the light leaks out of the mirror on each round trip. Okay, you just have an exponential, you have a fraction of it leaking out on each round trip, so you have an exponential decay. If you have molecular absorption in here as well, that also contributes to the decay, because after each round trip, you lose some power. Okay, so what you can do is you can measure the decay rate of a Empty cavity, and then you can put some material in, measure the new decay rate, and the difference gives you a measure of the effect of the material you put in the cavity. So we will look at that uh, in later lectures. So the quality factor is, um, it can be the or not, the, the net, on how you decide, right? Well, so it's proportional to the finesse. In this, in the limit where these uh, reflectivities are near one, okay. And it's proportional with a factor on order of unity. So it's a little bit hand wavy to say they're the same thing. Are there any other questions? That says two L over C, where L is the cavity length. So 2L is the round-trip distance. Dividing that by speed of light gives us the round-trip time. Okay, so we're going to jump ahead. This is slide 26, if you're following along. Um, And talk about some of the properties of lasers. So I said before that there's sort of two classes that we often talk about, three-level systems versus four-level systems. And we talked about that last time. That is important when you talk about the power scaling of the lasers. Um, Two other ways to classify lasers are pulsed or CW, continuous wave. So for pulsed lasers... um, the length of the pulse determines what physical mechanism is responsible for. If you have a particular pulse length you need, that determines what physical mechanism uh, typically is used to generate the laser pulses. So, um, looking at a pulse that's on the order of 100 picoseconds, pulses as short as that can be generated just by essentially chopping a beam with an electro-optic modulator, for instance. So some sort of electro-optic shutter that just turns on the light, either inside the cavity or outside of the cavity. It just turns it on and off. Um, you can also generate short pulses by only pumping your system for a short period of time. So if you have a pulsed pump for your laser, the output of the laser will only be present when the system is pumped. So... Pumping that uses, for example, flash lamps, are inherently pulsed lasers. Q-switching. Um, we talked about. Did we talk about Q-switching at the end of class last time? Q-switching is a method of um, blocking a cavity and allowing its uh, its gain to build up as you pump it, and then unblocking it and allowing all the power that you stored to leak out in a very rapid pulse. Uh, That can also get down to on the order of 100 picosecond pulses. In order to get shorter pulses than that, you need more sophisticated techniques. One of the more sophisticated techniques is called mode locking. So, mode locking involves controlling the phase of different longitudinal modes of the laser. So I said last time that if your gain profile for your laser, so gain is a function of frequency, if that were larger than the cavity line width, and you didn't have an etalon or some mechanism in place to filter the uh, the laser power such that you only had a single mode, what you'd expect is that the combination of this type of comb filter produced by the cavity with this gain line width would be an output from your laser that looks like this. So this is, uh, let's call this the spectral output power. So It's plotted as a function of frequency. What do we call a laser that has these multiple frequencies coming out of it? So this is a multi-mode laser, okay? And normally, each of these frequency spikes can be thought of as an independent, essentially an independent light source, an independent laser. That are all traveling together along in the same beam if however you can arrange for the phase of each of these different waves represented by these different uh, power spikes if each of those can have a fixed phase relationship then we can consider what happens when these fields add up coherently If they're all independent sources, they add up incoherently and we don't get regular, repeating, constructive interference. So what if you have sine waves at a variety of frequencies that are equally spaced and those sine waves have a fixed phase relationship meaning they're each ideal sine waves What do you expect the superposition of those to look like? Let's think about the phasers that represent these I think it's seven different fields that I've drawn. Let's consider, maybe this we'll call E0, we'll call this E1, E2, E3, E-1, E-2, E-3. So if I consider a phasor representing E0, and I draw that say along the real axis and I fix my reference frame such that that's not rotating. So we know that that's actually rotating around at optical frequencies. But if I follow that, or if I consider like a stroboscopic measurement at that frequency, what I would see is E0 is always pointing in the same direction. E1 is at a slightly higher frequency. Okay, so I'm going to add to E0, I'm going to add E1. But it's oscillating. right Around in a circle like that. So some of the times it increases the total electric field, some of the times it decreases it. When I add in E2, why? Let me draw an E1, E-1. It's going in the opposite direction. When I add in E2, it's also rotating around. What do I know about the speed of rotation of E2 compared to E1? it's twice as high. So If I'm starting with E0 as my reference frequency, E1 is at some offset frequency, E2 is twice that offset frequency. So we've got all these phasers oscillating around. And if they have random phases, then they may never add up all constructively at the same time. But if there's a moment where they do add up constructively, so that I have E1, E2, E3, They all add up constructively at one moment in time. At any other moment in time, uh, because they're all rotating at different rates, I would expect they would add up not constructively. Okay. But every if this let me call this frequency delta f for every period of time one over delta f. the phasers E1 and E-1 would have rotated around once, the phasers E2 would have rotated around twice, and they would, again, add up constructively. So what I would see in the time domain for the total output power, which is just what I would get, which is what I see with a photodetector looking at this multimode beam, is that there's a moment where they add up constructively, and at all other moments they essentially interfere uh, Destructively and produce negligible power, at least on the scale of when they're adding up constructively. And they repeat at regular intervals. That's called mode locking. So you hear about mode lock lasers, in order to have very narrow pulses, what do you need for this frequency spectrum? It needs to be long, it needs to have lots of components, meaning this gain, ban- this gain bandwidth needs to be large. So in order to have very narrow uh, temporal pulses, you need a very wide spectral range over which the laser can operate. The same lasers that are going to be tunable over a large bandwidth are the ones that are going to be capable of giving very short pulses. And in spectroscopy, both of those are desirable things. Being able to tune a laser over a large bandwidth means you can measure the spectrum of some sample over a large range. And having short pulses means you can take essentially faster and faster snapshots of what's going on in a system, sending a pulse through. You're only observing the system at the time when the pulse is present. So if you can get that uh, pulse duration down under the order of femtoseconds, you're getting a very quick and fast snapshot of what a system is doing. It's great for measuring dynamics, uh, for measuring rapid processes. And there's even more sophisticated techniques. We'll talk a little bit about harmonic generation. Uh, It's basically a way to extend this this effect. Okay, so that's just a little bit about uh, pulse width and tunability. And other properties of lasers that we care about are the wavelength they operate at, uh, maybe the peak intensity. So let's look at a few, and I'm just really going to focus on three different laser sources so we can understand some of the mechanisms and how they apply to real-world systems. Uh, The Ruby laser I chose for historical purposes. This is the first laser, demonstrated optical lasing. Uh, We'll look at the alexandrite laser because it was, uh, well, because it's the same as the Ruby laser, essentially with a very small modification. So once we understand the Ruby, understanding the alexandrite will be straightforward. The modification makes it tunable be a way to understand um, the basic mechanism that allows tunability in a laser. And then we'll talk about the neodymium YAG laser. That's one of the uh, more common lasers that you see in a research laboratory. Certainly any laboratory that uses nonlinear optics, which we'll talk a little bit about today, and that's used widely in spectroscopy to generate frequencies or wavelengths of light that aren't available directly from commercially available lasers. Um, so, neodymium YAG lasers are the most common source uh, for driving down in optics experiments. Okay, so let's look at the Ruby laser. Uh, ruby, as its name suggests, is a crystal. Um, it's a crystal, uh, basically aluminum oxide, and it's doped with chromium. It's the, the doping that makes it Ruby. Does anyone know what Al2O3 is called? So undoped ruby, that's sapphire. Yeah, and sapphire is a common optical material. Um, the, the scanner at the supermarket that they drag your food over, that window is made of sapphire. It's a very hard material, less brittle than glass. Conducts heat very well, which makes it good for some purposes. Submarine windows are made out of sapphire. They're strong. Um, so we think of sapphire as being like this blue gem, perhaps. That color comes from the impurities. Likewise, the color of ruby comes in the chromium, and it's the chromium that's going to be responsible for the, uh, the gain in the, in the device, the absorption or the gain that gives it its color. Okay, so um, here's a picture, a cutaway picture of what a ruby laser looks like. The laser crystal is cylindrical and is located in the center here, and there's this flash lamp that's wrapped around it. It's really just a flash bulb, like you would find on a camera, um, same basic mechanism, you can see there's a cooling tube flowing uh, through there That's probably uh, got either liquid water flowing or may have air, it depends on the, the design of the, the crystal or the, the laser head. And then you see this uh, outer surface is a reflecting mirror, it's meant to keep as much of the flash lamp light going back into the Ruby as possible. And the ends of the crystal are partially silvered. So when you see partially silvered, that just means reflectivity is less than one. So this was the first laser. Um, It was a bit of a fluke that it operated. One thing that wasn't understood at the time was the need for um, the ends of the cavity to be curved. This is what we call a flat, flat cavity. There's a flat surface here that's reflecting and a flat surface here that's reflecting. And if you'll notice, whenever I draw a cavity, I've always got curved mirrors. Okay, diffraction causes light to spread out. You have your light constrained in space, it will spread out. Its momentum will have a spread, Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And as it spreads out, you need a converging mirror to reflect it back in and retroreflect it. Okay, so in a flat, flat cavity cavity itself is what we call unstable the light would tend to spread out and on each bounce it would spread further and further out and it wouldn't uh, reproduce itself the beam shape would not reproduce itself after a round trip and you'd get uh, large losses due to diffraction okay, so the only reason this worked is that the circulating beam produced a thermal lens the, the beam heated up the center of the crystal as it heated up that both expands the crystal due to the thermal expansion coefficient, and it changes the index of refraction due to the uh, dNDT. Both of those things act like lenses. And having a focusing lens inside of this is equivalent to having curved mirrors. So it's a bit of a a fluke that it worked. Um, So the, the laser comes out this partially silvered mirror surface. So we call that the output coupler. Now inside the ruby, what we've got is these different energy levels. The flash lamp is pumping the system from the ground state to the excited states. And because it's, it's a flash lamp, it's essentially white light, it has a range of frequencies it can pump to. Okay, so this is what we call a three-level system. Even though, as shown, there's this band of energy levels being pumped, this band of energy levels being pumped, all of that is considered the third level that is being pumped to. And any transitions to these upper states rapidly decay into this metastable state. So the highest state, the upper lasing state, it's metastable, meaning long-lived. So the population can build up here until a photon comes along and stimulates the transition. So that energy level... Difference corresponds to a wavelength of six hundred and ninety-four nanometers. So that's the ruby laser. The alexandrite laser uses the same basic uh, material. Uh, except there's beryllium doped into the aluminum oxide crystal lattice. And the presence of the beryllium causes there to be uh, a spreading of the ground state energy level. There's essentially um, very closely spaced in energy uh, phonon states, so vibrational states of the crystal lattice that cause this ground state to have a large number of very closely spaced uh, energies near it. And we essentially treat it as being smeared out into a, into a, a band that has some, some uh, size in the energy spectrum. And then the, the mechanism is the same. The system is pumped to an excited state, rapidly decays to this metastable level, and then decays down into the ground state. But that decay can take on a couple of the different forms. Um, It can decay to the top of the ground state or to the bottom of the ground state or anywhere in between. Those are all allowed states. And as a result, there will be a range of wavelengths that uh, are accessible. And that range is from about 700 to 825 nanometers. 826 nanometers. And so the way that uh, this system is tuned is with the prism inside of the laser cavity and so what you can see here is the dispersion of the prism causes different wavelengths so you have different uh, output angles of the prism and a reflecting mirror which needs to be aligned to retroreflect the light will only retroreflect light at one particular angle so only one particular wavelength uh, will be retroreflected and passed back in and resonate in the cavity. Other wavelengths don't make it back in. That's treated as a loss. Okay, so if your loss is larger than your gain, you don't get lasing. But for this one particular wavelength, we have low loss, high gain, and we get lasing. How could this be tuned? I mean, so that narrows it down to a specific wavelength. How could you tune which wavelength? Lases. Tilt the prism, yeah. So you physically rotate the prism. So if you see a a tunable laser, oftentimes there will be a little micrometer sticking out the top of the laser. As you're turning it, you're probably turning a a little uh, stage that holds the prism. Tilt it a little more, you've got lambda 2 to retroreflect. Okay. So let's go on to another laser. We're going to talk about the neodymium-yag laser. All three of these are what we call solid-state lasers. They're, they're crystals. Um, in order to understand the energy diagram of the uh, neodymium-yag laser, I have a little bit of background information here, although I think I'm going to skip it. It's there if you're interested in what all these... Uh, labels mean on the energy levels So neodymium YAG YAG means yttrium aluminum garnet Garnet is a crystal with a particular structure um, So it's a it's an it's a it's garnet is a crystal lattice that contains uh, oxygen and some other material In this case that other material is the yttrium and the aluminum so, this is the, the chemical formula then for yttrium aluminum garnet. We call it YAG. Um, neodymium ions are doped into that very lightly. Something on the order of a percent by weight of the crystal will be the neodymium dopant. And then neodymium provides a four-level system to operate the laser on. So there's the ground state down here. And there are all these uh, discrete energy levels. These correspond to different um, orbital angular momentum states of the outermost electrons. So the system will get pumped into upper states. Which upper states is not so important? Those upper states will rapidly decay into this metastable uh, 4f 3 halves state see the slide previous if you're interested in what the 4 and 3 halves mean they relate to the uh, amount of spin in the uh, the amount of spin and the amount of angular momentum so this is a metastable state so the population will stay there essentially long enough for a population inversion to build up and then you can get transitions down to this, uh, this first excited state that's an allowed transition. So you can get uh, transitions there and then non-radiative decay back into the ground state. So this transition has a frequency or a, a wavelength of 1.06 microns. It's an energy associated with a wavelength of 1.06 microns. Um, there are other transitions... That it can occur. You see, there's lots of energy levels drawn. There are other transitions that can occur. Um, So from here to here is something like 1300 nanometer transition, and you can also get neodymium-yag lasers that operate at 1300 nanometers. Um, Most commonly is the 1064 nanometer transition, or 1.06 micron. Can someone remind me what one of the disadvantages of a four-level system is, and what one of the advantages is? Okay. So the energy we're extracting from this upper state is not the full energy of the upper state. Unlike the ruby or the alexandrite, where the decay took it all the way down to the ground state, and now only takes it down to this state. So we get less energy out in the photon relative to a three-level system. So that's a disadvantage. So this state can always be thought of as being uh, depleted and this one will always then have an er inversion. So we're never gonna deplete the population inversion. So the system is much easier to make lays. The threshold pump power is much lower. Um, Okay, so let's see. The transitions occur, the pump transitions occur Um, from fairly narrow energy bands to other energy bands. And so typically, rather than blasting this with a flash lamp, which you can do, and it's having photons in the whole range of energies, oftentimes what you do is pump it with a diode laser. So diode lasers at 808 nanometers correspond to uh, pumping into this state, You can pump at 980 nanometers, which is this state. So there's a few different uh, wavelengths at which you can efficiently pump. Is it only the neodymium electron that are getting pumped Mm off? It is. So what's the quantum efficiency if you pump with 808 nanometers and extract 1064? Yeah, it's about 80%. It's a, uh... how'd you calculate 80%, Paul? So energy is HC over lambda, energy of a photon. So the HCs are going to cancel out. And the quantum efficiency then is going to be the ratio of the pump wavelength to the ratio or to the uh, output wavelength. or 800 nanome- 808 nanometers divided by 1064 nanometers. Um, this transition from this upper state I said this upper state was a metastable state it's long lived that's one of our requirements for lasing it's less relevant in a four level system right? because you always have low population in the lower state so you don't need much population in the upper state so it doesn't need to uh, build up much inversion but uh, it is classically forbidden this is a transition with no angular momentum change but the angular momentum can be given off in a a crystal lattice vibration and the energy can be given off in a photon and so that combination allows a very weak or a very slow transition to occur it's very improbable but it can occur because of that if this transition is unlikely. This lifetime is long. If the lifetime is long, the frequency bandwidth is what? Wide or short? Short. Short. Very narrow frequency bandwidth. That gives rise to a very narrow frequency, narrow line width laser. These typically are operated in single mode operation cavity free spectral range is often much greater than the line width of the lasing material and that's one of their advantages in a research experiment is the line width is very small meaning the frequency is well known the frequency is not varying so it makes an excellent clock if you're measuring timing using interference of the beam um, because the phase is so stable the frequency is is, uh, so well defined that it forms a very accurate clock. Okay, so with those, the understanding of those lasers we can look up, maybe from a laser manufacturer or I think this is actually um, a company that sells laser dye. I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, You can look up for example a chart of what lasers are available at what wavelengths. So let's say you have a spectrum of something cesium that you expect to be at 873 nanometers, and you ask, what laser can I get that uh, will allow me to scan that frequency? This chart shows the lasers available, um, the horizontal axis is frequency. There are one, two, three, four, five different classes of lasers that they're showing. So excimer excitation, neodymium YAG excitation, Flash lamp excitation, nitrogen excitation, and argon ion and krypton ion excitation. These are all actually um, the same type of laser. It's called a dye laser. These are five different things that pump the dye laser. And each of these little lines represents a different mole- molecular dye used in the laser. So what I'm saying dye, it's DYE, it's just like food coloring, that type of dye. And you can get different. Different chemical dyes to put into your laser. And they laser at slightly different frequencies, and depending on what you pump them with, you get different output wavelengths. Um, So the dye laser is one very tunable system. We'll look at a couple others. And we'll start in the UV and work our way towards the infrared. Okay, so in the UV and invisible, we have dye lasers, and we have what's called rare earth ion vibronic lasers. Uh, for all intents and purposes, this means uh, titanium sapphire lasers. Have you ever heard of TISAF or sapphire laser? That's what this is. And let's look at uh, what these lasing materials are. So, a dye is some sort of complex organic molecule with lots and lots of bonds. A common one is shown here, there's its chemical symbol that's known as rhodamine 6G. We could go back to this plot and if we could read it, you could find rhodamine 6G is one of these lines. It appears here, it appears here, here. So that's one particular molecular dye, there's others. And the idea is that there's so many degrees of freedom in these bonds that all the rotation and vibrational energy levels that can be excited here form essentially a continuous spectrum or a continuous range of energy levels that the system can exist at. And if you have a continuum of energy levels, that means a continuum of wavelengths that it can lay at. So here is a plot of the fluorescence of Rhodamine 6G when pumped at 480 nanometers. So that means you have a 480 nanometer laser I believe that's a a line of the uh, argon ion laser it's being absorbed by this dye so think of some fluid maybe in a glass cell or we'll see uh, maybe just freely flowing in laminar flow The the 480 nanometer light's passing through it it's absorbing that and then you look at what comes off, what fluoresces this is the spectrum you'll notice it's not a discrete set of lines the way we had for atomic spectra. It's got this broad range of wavelengths over which it can emit light at. Uh, Why is there no emission below this point? Is there just not data there? Is that real? So we only, for a 480 nanometer pump photon, we only have a certain amount of energy being deposited in the material. We can't extract more energy in a lasing photon than what we put in. So for a pump photon at 480, you can only extract lower energy photons. Lower energy means longer wavelength. Okay, so in an energy level diagram, we have... Um, essentially a broad band of energies, and we're exciting up to 480, this is a transition corresponding to 488 nanometers, 480, and then we get decay into a range of energies, but the amount of energy we extract has to be less than 480. So here's the uh, similar spectra for a number of different dyes. So this is Rhodamine 6G. I mentioned, I use that as an example. It's one of the more common dyes. You can see it's got a much uh, stronger uh, emission. I guess this is an emission line. And you can see at different wavelengths there are other dyes that are more efficient. So these dye lasers... We'll use one of these dyes circulating as a fluid and depending on the wavelength you want to operate the laser at you'll use a different particular dye. Um, They can be pumped. There's a variety of ways they can be pumped. We saw in that chart there were five different classes of pumping. Um, Common ways to pump them are with a flash lamp. Because they'll also absorb a broad spectrum of light you can pump them relatively efficiently with a flash lamp. Whereas if they only absorb discrete, very discrete frequencies, you're probably better off pumping with something that's uh, spectral energies confined to those frequencies. They can be pumped with other lasers. So in any case, uh, what do we know about the wavelength of the pump compared to the wavelength of the output? The pump wavelength has to be longer or shorter? Shorter. Right. So if you want to use this in the visible, say at 500 nanometers, you need to pump it at a frequency below five, or wavelength smaller than 500 nanometers. Whatever wavelength you pump it at, you're only going to get output above that. Um, okay, so neodymium yag we saw was, uh, had a 1064 nanometer transition. So that's not going to be useful for pumping and getting visible light out. This is doubled neodymium yag. So a process called frequency doubling can take the, near-infrared light and convert it into green light. So 1064 nanometer light, if you double that, what wavelength is it at? 532. So 532 is green. Argon ion is a green laser. Krypton ion is a green or blue laser. So generally, bluish-greenish uh, pump sources are used when these are used in the visible spectrum. Uh, Let's skip that. So there's a couple ways that the uh, dye can circulate. And it kind of depends on how you're using the laser. If it's a CW laser, you're constantly pumping the dye and extracting light. And in order to avoid saturation in the dye, you need to always be replenishing the dye solution. And so that's commonly done by these so-called liquid jets. Just think of it as laminar flow of the liquid across the the lasing cavity. Um, Okay, so you've got flowing liquid inside your laser. Doesn't that cause problems? Yes, it does. So dye lasers are notorious for being uh, difficult to maintain, for breaking, for leaking, You bump it, you can have liquid spills, you can have electronic shorting out. There's all sorts of reliability issues with dye lasers. If it's pulsed, then you can have a slower flow of the liquid and still expect that um, from pulse to pulse, you're illuminating new new unsaturated dye. Um, and so you can then often contain the fluid flow in, in some, sort of, uh, some sort of channel. That improves the reliability a little bit, but it decreases fluid flow and limits you to pulsed operation. So a couple things about pulsed operation. Um, the length of your pulse, delta T, can't exceed that of, how, of your pump pulse. So if you're pumping it with a flash lamp, Your output's not going to be any longer than however long your flash lamp is on. But it's going to be longer than the radiative uh, decay rate of the upper state. And as a result, if you take the inverse of these times, that says the frequency bandwidth of your pulse is always going to be greater than the, uh, the frequency bandwidth of the pump, but always less than the spectral bandwidth of the die. So those are the dye lasers. The rare earth ion vibronic lasers, or as I mentioned, the titanium sapphire is the most common example of this, uh, is a laser that, it's a solid material, it's a crystal, crystalline structure, with some rare earth ions doped into it. So the titanium uh, doped into a sapphire lattice. And just like the Alexandrite laser, which is an example of this, the vibrations of the crystal lattice spread the energy bands and allow tuning. So these, compared to dye lasers, tend to be more efficient at at higher wavelengths. Um, They're more robust. You don't have the issues with the liquid, open liquid flowing around inside of your laser cavity. Um, You don't have the issues with the molecules dissociating when they're overexposed okay, so that's why the dye needs to continually be circulated and eventually needs to be replaced so all of this allows them to be much more compact, robust they're newer and I think in Demtroder it states that they're less mature commercial product but I think that's less and less of an issue uh, that might have been true 20 years ago 15 years ago not such an issue now so here's a list, this is from Demtroder that shows the uh, different rare-earth ion-vibronic lasers. So I highlight the Thai sapphire here, because if you look at the operating wavelengths that these can reach, um, if you're talking about visible or near-visible, the Thai sapphire laser covers the largest bandwidth. So compared to some of these other, um, for example, the alexandrite, which we said was covered about 100, 125 nanometer region of the spectrum, the Thai sapphire encompasses that and and expands upon it. So that's a reason why you don't see a lot of alexandrite lasers being used. They are used for uh, laser facial treatments and teeth whitening. Okay, so next going further and further into the uh, infrared, We have these quasi-tunable sources. Um, Examples of those are molecular gas lasers or lead-salt diode lasers. We've seen one molecular gas laser already, it's carbon dioxide. Um, And the idea is that there's lots of different vibrational energy levels that are uh, accessible in these laser systems. So you can often have lasing on different transitions and these are called line-tunable or quasi-tunable because you can operate on one transition or adjust it to operate on a different transition, but you can't smoothly tune the wavelengths between those. So, for example, carbon dioxide can oscillate at 9.6 microns or 10.6 microns, but you can't tune between them. Okay, there's two different discrete transitions. And so depending on the, uh, the coating on your laser cavity mirrors, which of these has a higher reflectivity will determine which of those gets, uh, becomes dominant. As I mentioned the methanol laser, which extends far into the infrared. So 699, that's almost microwave wavelengths, as another example of this quasi-tunable molecular gas lasers. Um, the lead diode, lead salt diode lasers, these are diode lasers. Um, so not unlike the diode laser that I'm using right now. Um, although they typically involve uh, 4B and 6 column elements to produce uh, uh, electrical band gap between two semiconductors and when you have uh, dopant in in those semiconductors you have holes or free electrons when those hole and free electrons uh, connect you get energy given off the energy is associated with the band gap These can be manufactured to have adjustable band gaps, depending on the dopant level. And so anywhere from about 3 microns to 27 microns is accessible via this technology. So you can order a laser using this technology to have a particular wavelength in that range, but you can't necessarily tune that laser that you receive from the manufacturer over that entire range. OK, so if we were to um, look at the range of wavelengths that are accessible using some of the lasers that I just introduced, we can kind of plot out a spectrum. And I'll plot it as a function of wavelength. From over here is the UV, here's the visible, the near-infrared, and then the infrared. And in the UV invisible, we have some uh, dye lasers. We have, sort of over here in the near-infrared, we have the tie sapphire laser. It's usually written like that, a combination of atomic element names and, and words. And then over here in the infrared, we have some of these line-tunable sources. So, what do you do if your experiment calls for scanning a range of wavelengths that is not under one of these curves? What if you need to scan somewhere over here at 600 nanometers? It's just below the Thai sapphire and just above the available dye laser, for example. Or what if you need to work out uh, scan wavelengths that are in the ultraviolet that aren't accessible by any of these? The most common way to deal with that is using nonlinear optics. Okay, so nonlinear optics involve a number of different processes. Uh, some of the more common are second harmonic generation or optical parametric oscillators. We'll talk a little bit about each of those. Um, but first, a little demonstration of a nonlinear op- nonlinear phenomenon in general. Can anybody think of a nonlinear phenomenon? What does that mean to be nonlinear? any everyday usage of that term that you hear that conjures up any particular meaning do you have an idea Paul something you were going to say uh, you, can't. you can't yeah Yeah. so we have a lot of examples of things that have to be linear or, or approximations that this is true when it's li- a linear system but we don't always talk about okay so what does that mean um, so the origin of the term means that you have some some black box you have an input and some output I'll use sort of an electrical analogy where I'll call those voltages but they could be whatever it could be a pressure wave, it could be an optical wave any, anything that you can measure that goes in and out and if you plot the magnitude of the output versus the magnitude of the input. It's a linear system. And you get a proportionality. So, a nonlinear system, you probably figure out it's not going to be linear. Uh, but the more commonly used and perhaps a more relevant way to quantify when a system is linear or nonlinear is by talking not about the input and output output amplitudes, but the spectral components. So if I plot V out, it's spectral properties. When I drive the input at a fixed frequency, so the input is varying what I would expect in a linear system, the output will vary. And for a single frequency input, I get a single frequency output. In a nonlinear system, right, there's going to be some distortion because the response is nonlinear. Um, it might be easier to see if I drew, I don't know, maybe a system with more nonlinearity than that one that is like, like that, my output is going to be a square wave. Right? It's either going to be high or low, depending on whether my input is above or below that threshold. So I'm going from a sine wave to a square wave. And in the process, I take an input at one frequency, and the output will have a frequency spectrum with components at other frequencies and that by definition is a system that's nonlinear. if the output spectral response does not match the input spectral response the system is non yeah, okay so let's demonstrate this, the most common commonly observed example of this is you pull up to a stoplight you've got your windows open, someone's got the They're uh, kick-ass stereo pumping But it's not really that kick-ass The volume's just way up And it's driving the speakers into their cages And instead of hearing the music You hear the distorted music That distortion is a nonlinearity. You're driving the system It's supposed to be, say, making a nice sine wave Going back and forth But it doesn't, it slams up against some rail And it stops It can no longer continue to respond Proportionally to the input Okay, so let's do a sound example. Here is a real-time spectrograph of my voice. It's coming through this microphone right here. Um, so here is the amplitude versus time. Here is the spectrum. Right, and I happen to have emailed myself a uh, 60-second one kilohertz sound file. Can anybody guess how big a 60-second one kilohertz sound file is when compressed with MP3 encoding? I thought it might just be a few bytes. It's just a single frequency. It's two megabytes. I don't know. Okay, so let me play this at low amplitude. One kilohertz. Let me turn up the amplitude. Now, these speakers are crap, right? So it's going to distort. You can see the distortion pretty clearly on the frequency spectrum. You can also, if you have a good eye, you can see that that's not truly sinusoidal. Higher frequency components. And that becomes more of an issue as I turn the volume up, right? The nonlinear increase, nonlinearity increases. Um, and that's exactly the same way that uh, certain optical materials behave. At low intensity, they're linear. As you get higher and higher intensity, they become less and less linear. In our classical electron oscillator model, we said the electron is being pushed around by the electric field, and it's always feels this restoring force back to the nucleus and that the dynamics of that affect the index of refraction but now what happens when we drive it hard enough that it's no longer being pulled back towards the nucleus very strongly we have almost ionized it it doesn't feel the same strength pulling it back and you might expect the output as a function of the input rolls off we have a non but that you can only exploit at high intensities. Um, so that happens in optics. This is a neodymium vanadate laser at 1.06 microns. Basically identical to the neodymium yag laser, just a different host material. But it's got a little uh, nonlinear crystal in there. So when I shine it, I don't see 1064 nanometer light, which I wouldn't see anyways because it's infrared, but I see the 532 nanometer light that comes from that being doubled. So I'm seeing the, not the you know, this equivalent of hearing the second harmonic in my demo, I'm seeing the second harmonic of the light. Okay, so that's a nonlinear system, and that allows you to take, for example, this frequency range, and if you double it, shift it to another frequency. Okay, so here's the slide that shows what I just demonstrated, Jack. Okay, and here's sort of a plot uh, that's a little more carefully done than what I did on the board that shows uh, the different tuning ranges. So here's the very narrow frequency uh, Neodymium-Yag transition at 106.4. Here's the doubled wavelength. And that can be used to pump a dye laser that would would resonate, or it would uh, emit... At higher wavelengths than that. But you can also mix, superimpose this, uh, let me see, this neodymium YAG output with a Thai sapphire laser. So you take two laser beams, you interfere them, you get constructive interference once every time that their two frequencies uh, cause their phasers to line up. Another way of saying that is, you get a beat note at the frequency difference between those two lasers. The sum and different frequencies. The sum frequency gives you shorter wavelengths. Okay, it's just another form of uh, nonlinearity. It's the same nonlinearity. It's just instead of having one very intense single frequency wave, you have two that together drive the system into nonlinearity. And so this tuning range can be converted here by doubling, here by mixing with the neodymium laser, um, to here by mixing this with the second harmonic of the neodymium mag laser. Um, so there's all sorts of combinations of taking two different lasers and mixing them to shift their frequency to another to another region of the spectrum. So the general Requirement in frequency conversion comes from conservation of energy. And you have an interaction where you have, on um, the quantum level, you have two photons, E1 and E2, that have energies E1 and E2. And those are mixed in this nonlinear material to produce a single photon. of energy E3 that has the sum energy Let me write this so you can see it Okay, or if I write that as H times F3 equals H times F1 plus H times F2 and I can say F3 equals F1 plus F2. If these two photons come from the same laser, we call that second harmonic generation, we have two photons of the same energy, same frequency. The output frequency is twice the input frequency. Therefore, the wavelength is half. Or the two photons could come from different lasers, have different energies, different frequencies, and give the sum frequency that way. Okay, and that's, that's what these, uh, these mixings of the tie sapphire and the neodymium yag laser are. Okay, so uh, the neodymium yag laser is capable of producing very high output powers, which make it very useful for driving these nonlinear effects. You need to get high power before this nonlinearity is relevant, just like you need to turn up the volume very large to drive the nonlinearity in the acoustic device. So that's why I say it's the workhorse of nonlinear optics. It's very common to take a high power neodymium YAG laser and a relatively low power tunable laser and get a tunable output. Um, so that's how you can shift the spectrum uh, to lower frequency or to shorter wavelengths. You can also shift with a similar mechanism to higher wavelengths to address the infrared. And that's using a process called. Optical parametric either amplification or oscillation. And the idea is just this in reverse. You take a single photon and you break it into two. That's the quantum process going on inside of the uh, nonlinear material. Or the energy of a single photon gets converted into uh, two photons. So the way that works is a photon comes in, it has a certain energy level, And if, in the proper material, you can get two output photons coming from that input photon, their energy still needs to add up to be the same as this. There may or may not be a real energy level here, corresponding to the transition. There doesn't have to be a real energy level there, because the atom never stays at that state. It's excited to that state and immediately decays, so the time it spends there is zero. So, its energy uncertainty is infinite. If it has infinite energy uncertainty, it can encompass real energy states. And so, if you put a cavity around a system that has this sort of optical parametric amplification going on, then you can control what frequencies resonate in that cavity, and you can control which wavelengths which combination of wavelengths this high-energy photon decays into. So as I've drawn it, there's an infinite number of pairs of output photons that can add up to give the same energy as the input photon. But if you constrain the circulating light to have a certain frequency due to the laser cavity, or the, the optical parametric oscillator cavity, you can control those wavelengths, and by adjusting the um, length of the cavity and oftentimes the temperature of the material, you can tune uh, the wavelength of these outputs essentially over the entire infrared. Okay, so for all of this, the magic is in the material. This uh, this sort of black blob up here that has the nonlinearity. Um, there's a couple criteria that any such nonlinear material must meet. It has to be transparent at all the wavelengths you're considering, right? Um, it has to have some amount of nonlinearity in it. So the response of the material, the index of refraction, needs to somehow change as the amplitude of the electric field uh, of the driving wave changes. And it needs to be possible to get the different uh, wavelengths of light that are propagating through the material to propagate at the same speed. If they're propagating at different speeds, then as you generate some of this uh, frequency-converted light, as it drifts out of phase with the light that you're driving it with, the additional light you generate cancels out the light you had already generated. That's called phase matching. If you want to learn about phase matching, take uh, or any of this, 208 electro-optics where we spend an entire semester talking about this stuff um, for our purposes we'll just say there are these constraints that limit the number of materials that, that can do this magic to a, a select number for the lasers that you drive this with you generally need high peak intensity to exploit the nonlinearity. And that means a couple things. It means that you need to focus the laser light to very small spots to get high intensity. So for a given amount of power, it needs to be focused very tightly, both in space and often in time. So in time, that means pulsed. Okay, so you're taking whatever energy is available from your laser that you're pumping with, pumping the nonlinearity with, it, and you're compressing it into a small volume of space-time. Um, common nonlinear crystals... Uh, lithium niobate is a very common one. Beta-barium borate is a common one. Uh, there's one potassium... I don't even know the, what the T stands for. KTP. Potassium titri- blah, blah blah phosphate And that's what's actually inside this crystal. So is that generating N64 as well as the 532? There are three wavelengths that are relevant here. Um, there's a laser diode in here, which is essentially the same as what's in here. It's at a different wavelength, it's at uh, about 800 808 nanometers. So that's near-infrared. That's pumping the neodymium vanadate that's producing the 1064 nanometer light. And inside of that laser cavity, there is a uh, frequency doubler that converts the 1064 to 532. And the output coupler over here of the cavity has very high reflectivity for 1064 and much lower for 532. So essentially, it lets out the green light and keeps the red light in, the infrared light. So there's very little infrared light coming out of this. There are some. Um, So you need all these different conditions to be met. So generally, using nonlinear optics in an experiment increases the complexity tremendously. Uh, You'll have whole, whole tables of experiments of the experiment generated to just generating the non-linear nonlinearity, the high peak power, the pulsing, the temperature control of the crystals, um, And I say that, and it used to be the case that yeah, you could only see nonlinear optics in a you know, $500,000 optics lab. Um, you can now buy this for 10 bucks off of eBay. So all the necessary components got crammed down and mass-produced, and now it can be yours. Okay, so we're right on time. Uh, so what we? What should you take away from all this? Um, this is primarily a summary of last week's lecture, um, but it's relevant here. You need to have a population inversion in your atomic medium to get gain. That means you need to have the higher energy levels more populated than the lower energy levels. Um, that comes from pumping. A pumping either a three-level or a four-level system where using more than just two energy levels allows you to achieve this this inversion. Um, That will produce gain. In order for that gain to produce lasing and and a beam of light coming out, you need an optical cavity that resonates that uh, fluorescing light into an amplified beam. That cavity controls the output frequency. And so by tuning the cavity, you can control... The output frequency within the frequency bandwidth of your lasing material. Okay, so last time we talked a little bit about the cavity and how to control the frequency uh, response of the cavity. Today we talked about uh, different ways to increase the frequency bandwidth of the material. They all involve broadening the lower state energy level from a single level to a, a band of energy levels. Um, that can be done in very complex molecules of organic dyes that have lots of degrees of freedom, so lots of different ways to store the energy at slightly different levels, or through this vibrational coupling of the energy levels to a a crystal lattice and lots of different phonon energies that that make up a a ground state band. Um, At infrared and near-infrared, most of the tunability... It's just quasi tunability, different lines you can select in a given laser but not continuously tune over. Um, In order to get true tunability in the infrared, we need to use nonlinear optics. Um, Generally, optical parametric oscillators that take a high energy photon and convert it into two low energy photons is used to generate tunable infrared light, and the opposite process is used to generate tunable UV or visible light. Any questions? Okay, Uh, I'll see you a week from today.